Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Dr. Mark Lennox, it's great to have you with us here today on the Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool podcast. Uh, thanks for carving up time to join us, first off. And second off, as we get rolling, you know, I was just sharing with our producer about just what a remarkable career path you've had. And I know you're working on some incredibly interesting stuff now. And, uh, you know, in the context of, of tech talent and, and that sort of thing, I'd love to to hear about uh, that background, what you're doing now and, and how tech and AI and machine learning and all these things are impacting that project uh, as you go forward. Well, it's a absolute pleasure to be with you here, uh, John. I'm uh, glad uh, glad we could connect. I know you, you and I have been friends for a number of years and I'm uh, we'll, we'll bring you up to date. So um, in general, um, if you at, look at my stuff on LinkedIn, you'll see engineer, scientist, pilot. And right. that's kind of the core of what I am, right? By training, I'm an engineer. I build things. And I've got you know degrees in a, several different kinds of engineering, PhD in computer science. So I'm really, I, I love that. I love being able to, to create something from nothing. And the scientist part, well, that's, that's the part of me that likes to discover new things, you know, kind of push the boundaries of what's known and mm -hmm. what's maybe currently unknown that needs to be known. And uh, the pilot part of me, that's that's a little more the the adventurous part. and uh, <laughs> The explorer. I, the explorer part. And I've uh, been flying for a long time. And uh, it's, uh, it's one of those ways, it's one of the ways that I am able to um, kind of decompress a little bit find out, uh, um, figure out what's important. But, um, so I've been in, uh, in med tech for over 30 years and mm -hmm. I started working for a little startup company in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee called CTI Pet Systems. And that, uh, company was the company that built the first pet scanners. Right. And, uh, I was around for all of that. The very first pet CT ever made. And, um, I'd left after 17 years. Uh, it, after they had uh, been purchased by what is now Siemens Molecular Imaging. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, um, it was a fabulous run. It was a fabulous time in medical device technology. The FDA was starting to really understand a little bit more about software. And uh, so we were kind of right at the forefront of all of that. And uh, PET, of course, has had a huge impact on healthcare. And that's where I really got a taste of what I really what things really meant you now okay. it's it's one thing to solve a problem is all is all engineers i mean that's what we're really all about is we right, like to right. solve problems and um but to me i could come up with the greatest thing you know cure cancer yeah and uh, that'd be that'd be fantastic but it doesn't really actually matter until you can get it out get it into production roll it out and so that it can be used by regular people. Right, the application side of it. Application is where it all hits home, and that's where it becomes important to me. And, um, I mean, I love the discovery process. 
I am right. after all a scientist, right? And I, I, I like that. But it's really seeing pet roll out and have such an oversized impact uh, was really important to me. And while I was there, I led all of the real high-performance development, especially for neuroimaging. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had a lot of lot of exposure to that. It had a lot of had a lot of personal in, importance to me. My grandfather died of Parkinson's, so I kind of had a, a an inclination mm-hmm. to to work on a lot of that. Yeah. And then uh, after it was purchased by Siemens Molecular, I I all of a sudden had a, a lot more opportunity in front of me to kind of do whatever. And uh, I, I I thought it might be a good idea to retire and. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, after a couple of years of skiing a lot and, and flying my airplanes a lot, I bored out of my mind. And, and that's about the time I went back to, to Texas A&M and um, was a professor there and led the medical imaging program at the Institute for Preclinical Studies and did a whole bunch more work. Now, now in MR and CT and mm-hmm. Left ventricular assist devices and stents and a lot of cardiovascular work, all all kinds of really really great stuff. Um, got involved in an in, in ultrasound company, QT Imaging. That's a uh, a uh, breast imaging company that uh, has developed a really nice um, imaging technology for detecting breast cancer, and that was FDA approved a few years ago and they're uh, currently in commercial rollout right now so um, well that's uh, that's where we cross paths actually that's right on, yeah, on a search right. i was working on and yeah uh, I, that, at, at the time I, I recall and um so that's you know still going great and I'm, I'm really glad to see that happen too and then um in the meantime though i've gotten involved in uh in a new startup where um, i'm the ceo and what we're doing is um a combination of MR spectroscopy and mm-hmm. machine learning. And uh, so, quick question. Do you know the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? Well, I mean, artificial intelligence, we're trying to get uh, these adaptive algorithms to actually act like they're thinking, right? And reasoning to a solution. Machine learning, I think that's part of the process. You know, you yeah. got you to gotta teach it to do these things. Well, it's... It's a, there's a real fundamental fundamental difference between the two. And what it is, is um, machine learning is generally written in Python or Lab or something like that. Mm-hmm. Artificial intelligence is written in uh, PowerPoint. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, you know what? That spells we're doomed right there. If it's a PowerPoint, it's all over, man. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, the thing about MR spectroscopy is kind of a chemical analysis of what's going on at mm-hmm. and in, in terms of chemistry. So you do a, a spectroscopy scan of something, you can, you can measure concentrations of a variety of metabolites because every molecule has its own resonant frequency. And so we can kind of do a frequency scan and see mm-hmm. the concentration of all kinds of different things. And your brain is just this tremendous concoction of all kinds of chemical stuff going on at all time and being able to kind of associate that with a fingerprint if you will is a really powerful thing and um but the thing about spectroscopy that in the and it's been around since before mri and you know it used to be Uh magnetic um, nuclear magnetic resonance i was going to ask i was going to ask as far as what you're looking at 
the scan, if you will. I mean, that's that's in place, right? I mean, hospitals, yeah. if they have an MRI machine, they have access to that aspect of what you're talking about. Pretty much everybody can do spectroscopy and mm. it's got an MRI. I mean, it was it's the core technology that makes MRI work. And um, in fact, in a normal MRI, you kind of filter everything else out and you're just looking at water molecules, really. Mm-hmm. Water, water molecules, sometimes fat too. But um, generally speaking, you're trying to get rid of all that other noise. We just open that up and look at all of it and you get a, a chemical fingerprint of what's going on. And the problem with that is that human beings just can't read it. It's so complex and it's so subtle that, you know, you look at look at a spectrum of a normal person, you look at a spectrum of somebody that's really diseased, you, you can't, it's really hard to tell. Can't see the difference, not with a naked eye, so to speak. Not with a naked eye. But that is not true of computers. And uh, machine learning allows us to really suss out some of these very, very subtle things that, that as, as human beings, we have a hard time picking up on. And hmm. so with that, we're able to have a really you know, pretty solid idea of what's going on in, uh, in the brain. And our first application that we're looking at is, is diagnosing Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I think this, this, is, this is a trillion dollar kind of, of healthcare problem in this mm-hmm. country. And uh, this is the kind of thing I like going after, right? I'm, I'm, it's I wanna a whale. Want to have right. some impact. And yeah. uh, this, is, uh, this is a very powerful, this is a pow- very powerful tool to go up against a very difficult problem. And uh, there's a lot of going on. Yeah, there are a lot of things going on in that space. A lot of new drugs being developed. There's a couple of new ones been approved, um, but diagnosing it definitively is kind of hard, and we're we're tackling that. Question though, you're not diagnosing a patient, for example. You're not setting out to diagnosing a uh, diagnosing, yeah, delivering a diagnosis for a patient who has clear markers already has already been diagnosed. But you're trying to get it even earlier in stage, right? Because right. I think that's probably the key to treatment is before there's mass and momentum to any malady, any disease, you want to be able to go knock it out before it becomes this overwhelming sort of threat. Right. And, you know, I think in every case I've ever seen, um, and going back for even many, many years in PET, and this is one of the things that made PET so powerful, is that chemical changes precede anatomical changes. Okay. Always. And so if you can see what's going on chemically, you can see, you can get an idea of what's going to happen. And that is very, very important if you're trying to go after a, a degenerative type disease and try to understand where it is. And, you know, technically, we don't diagnose it. That's the doctors. Right, That's, right. But uh, what, we're, what we're doing is we're feeding the doctors some, some very good information to mm-hmm. enable them to understand some of the subtleties of what's going on and make it possible for them to, to do something um, positive for the patient. Okay, huge project that you've got going on to develop this. I'm curious, since you have existing technology that does the scanning and all that, I would take it that developing the back end of this, uh, the machine learning aspect of it, whatever may be coming in from the AI side of it, um, how challenging is that? I mean, I know right now when you look around the market, everybody in their second cousin who's school age is probably writing papers and doing homework with chat GPT, right? Sure. Um, they're, 
In fact, there's an attorney who got in big trouble trying to use that for his citations. I read about that. <laughs> there was a, the Air Force that recently did a, uh, I read an article on this too. They, they, they recently did a study, a simulation with uh, an AI powered drone and a human operator. And the drone was supposed to go hit this one target. Well, the human operator waved it off. And so the drone wanted to do its job. And so in the simulation, we're not at Skynet yet, turned around and attacked the, the human operator. So they had to put a fail safe in there for that, obviously. And then the next thing, smartly enough, okay, you're not going to let me do my job. It went after the communications array so that the human operator couldn't tell it not to do his job. Um, you know, so there, there are a lot of pitfalls and a lot of, I guess you could say, kind of frontier uh, aspects to AI right now and to, to all of this and how we apply this technology. Um, how big of a, of a hill is that to climb uh, for your project, for your company? It is a hill, uh, but these techniques are, are being applied in, in other areas, other, other diagnostic areas. And, you know, especially in radiology, right? Radiologists mm -hmm. are always just short supply. Anything we can do to help improve the efficiency and the accuracy of, of what our radiologists are doing is generally pretty well received. And when you've always, we've still got that, that human link is always, is always there. You know, anytime right. there's a, a, a human diagnostic going on, there's, there's going to be a human link involved. And that's, I think, a, a governing part of, of the whole process associated you know, as far as what the FDA is concerned anyway. So that's, now it's in this country. In other countries, see if you're, if you're thinking like, China or India or someplace like that that's very resource starved, mm -hmm. um, they're probably likely to, to take stuff like this on even earlier than we would and give it much more latitude earlier than we would because they simply don't have the number of people. You couldn't, you couldn't possibly train enough radiologists to cover just what China needs right. for, to try to give you know, Western level healthcare to their population. You just... You just can't physically do it. So it'd be overwhelming. It'd be very overwhelming. So they're they're you know different parts of the world are going to be different, and um, hopefully we can work this out in a in a nice way. Well, you know when you when you start talking about technology, and and I think it's completely applicable in this scenario as well. You're talking about generational changes, right? And it takes generations to build up the workforce with the necessary competencies to accelerate development, accelerate application. And I think one of the great things about AI is that it's going to help us accelerate even faster and maybe find ways to skip a generation or three as we develop things. Just like if you go back through human history, right? We always had these quantum leaps where, you know, Henry Ford with the manufacturing line. You know, before that, you go back, um, man, was it the 14 or 1500s? And they figured out how to cast uh, iron and cast bronze and these sorts of things to make cannons and whatnot at an industrial commercialized scale. And, and it allowed them to make larger tools, larger machines, larger whatevers. Um, and we've seen that happen over and over again. I was telling somebody uh, the other day, we're talking about pioneers crossing the United States in Conestoga wagons and on horseback. It took a long time. They laid down the track and started having trains going back and forth. It sped it up a whole lot. It might take days instead of months. 
Then we started building roads and we finally built the interstate road system. You could drive yourself across the U.S. in three or four days or whatever it might be. Um, and then we came up airplanes and we put the FAA in place and this, this series of airports and everything as you're familiar with. And now you can you can cross the country almost at will if you have the resources to do it. And I think as we go deeper into this and as sure as you see this, you develop it. It's going to be one of these things that you can just get to the answer faster and faster and faster, which means having the historicity of the why behind it and how it comes together is going to be more critical for decision makers going forward. Uh, you know, part of that's getting information in your case to the doctors who are going to make the diagnosis and come up with a treatment plan and, and that sort of thing. But I'm really curious as you're going through this, are you seeing some sort of accelerative type effect uh, in the technologies you develop it? And how much of that is tied to what you're learning by going through the process versus going through it vicariously because you bring other talented people in who maybe already have experience with this sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So I think one of the critical pieces to any machine learning problem, any AI problem, is that you have to understand what the data is telling you. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is where the data science really, really comes in. And, you know, all you know, machine learning, that's all really comes out of computational statistics. And this is, this is stuff that's, you know, been around a long, quite a long time. Um, we're just now getting to the point where we've got enough compute horsepower to really, really apply it well. Mm -hmm. And but still, you get right down to it. You know, the data is talking to you all the time, and uh, trying to understand what it's telling you and how to exploit it is really the most, the most challenging aspect of any of this. And when you start talking about MR spectroscopy, like where we're what we're using, that's a, there's a ton of information in that. And uh, mm -hmm. it is really, um, it's taken us a while to learn to speak the language. Uh, but as we get more and more fluent, uh, we become more and more powerful. And uh, that's, I think, true of all of these, of these types of developments. And uh, it is true. I've got a terrific team of, of people working for me to, to and working with me to help me do this. And um, they're bringing a very diverse set of viewpoints. And we've, we've tackled other things together in the past. Most of us have. And um, now we're, we're bringing a lot of that, a lot of that together. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So you're tackling, you're approaching this uh, relative to the brain, yeah. Alzheimer. And I think uh, I, I, Read or heard something? You're you're approaching TBI as well, traumatic brain injury patients. We are, yeah, yeah. I, w I would very much like to be able to solve that problem. That's hard to solve it, but I would sure like to be able to diagnose it and and understand. I think uh, I think the our service men deserve it. Well, I mean, you can look through all kinds of applications for TBI in life. I mean, people in car accidents. And there are service servicemen and women, absolutely. Um, you know, and it, really anybody's gotten their bell rung more than once or twice in their life could probably uh, benefit from knowing, hey, this subtle chemical change has happened. And, and now how do I try to address this? Right. Because I, I don't know about you, but my biggest fear is not that, um, you know, my hair is going to fall too late for the hair. Sorry. Um, <laughs> my biggest fear is losing 
mental faculty, right? You know, I, I love to read. I love to engage. I, I got six kids. I sit down and play spades, hearts or five crowns or whatever with them and, and do these sorts of things. And there's a lot of banter and just losing those things that we take for granted every day. Uh, there's one thing that would concern me about getting older or uh, getting my bell rung earlier in life and how it impacts me now uh, would be losing those simple joys that we have every day. Absolutely. You know, so anything that gets in front of that and deliver a knockout punch for me, that's, that's, that's golden. Um, I'm curious cause you're sitting up uh, in Idaho. Um, you know, when I hear Idaho, I think about beautiful landscape, snow and potatoes um, and a blue football field, isn't it? Yeah. It's in Boise, right? Where they have the blue football field uh, they do. up there. So I'm curious when it comes to attracting the resources you need in the talent, because you don't really need a whole lot, I would imagine, on MRI experts or spectrometer experts because it's resonant with you. Um, but when it comes to developing the back end of this, how do you go about or what do you target uh, in terms of skills, background, expertise uh, for your team? And And the reason I'm asking that is, you never know who listens in on these things, especially when you have have a guest who's who's done what you've done or doing what you're doing. And, you know, there could be somebody who's looking at this as a career path or an endeavor they want to tackle who has an interest like you do uh, because you've dealt with Parkinson's in your family before. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, what do you like to see from people coming in to help on the data science, machine learning, AI uh, part of the the project um, what do they need to bring to the table and what's important that you're finding as you develop this, uh, to be successful? Well, yeah, we're, we're, I'm in Idaho, but, uh, none of the rest of the team is, okay. um, we are totally remote company. We are spread all over the country mm -hmm. and, uh, that's the way we're going to stay. And I think, uh, uh, that is for a small team, uh, that I think is a a real advantage. It allows me to, to pick up talent um, with minimum hassle mm -hmm. anywhere, and uh, and that's good. But getting more to the heart of your of your question, you know, when I'm interviewing somebody, and I've hired hundreds of engineers over the course of my life, and of course my career, and uh, I look for three things. I look for people who are skilled in the art, you know, whatever it is mm -hmm. that I'm that I'm hiring after. Um, and in machine learning, I I do have a PhD in computer science. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am not defenseless here. Um, I, I I I get it, and I've and I've done a fair amount of development over the course of my life too. So I I want them to have skills. Whether they can program in a particular computer language or they've done something before or not, mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't really care. Um, I, I care that they're able to learn and I care that they are kind of open and inquisitive and want to, to go after something. I've often hired people that really had no experience in a particular area. I once hired an astrophysicist um, to do some inverse problem mathematics for me. And she's right. probably one of the best hires I ever hired, right? She's inquisitive, smart, driven, and um, 
had never looked at this problem before, but you know, astrophysicists do an awful lot of inverse problems. Yeah. And they're they're trying to extrapolate and get, you know, pick up a lot of information from very simple sensors. And so it worked out really well. And I and I try to keep a really open mind about that. I'm I'm not the kind of um, hiring you know, program that that says, okay, I, I must have the following things, and if you don't right. have all of these following check boxes, I don't want I don't want to talk to you. It's like, no, no, let's let's talk about who you are, mm-hmm. and 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 what kind of things you bring to the table, and I'll see about what I can do to kind of fit the fit the environment. Second thing I look for is I look for people who are um, just genuinely good people. Um, all okay. it takes is one jerk on the team, and you can completely demolish morale. Uh, you can completely demolish productivity. Right. Um, all of that. You know, I want some. I want people who are, who are genuinely good people. And who are honest and capable and are, are, are going to make, you know, make their best effort to, to get things done. And they, and they have to be able to work together with other people. Um, mm-hmm. it, is a, uh, it is a rare problem these days that a single person can go out and, and fix a problem. You know, you really, it, it always is a team effort. All of these types of applications are all much bigger than a single person. If you can't work with other people. You're done. You're done, you know. Yeah. You forget it. You, you, you got. I got. I got no. I got nothing for you. The third thing that I look for, and the thing that I think is probably the most important, is I want people who buy into my mission, and whatever, whatever it is, the company that, in this case, you know, we're going after Alzheimer's disease using MR spectroscopy and machine learning. What do you think about that? And if that is something that excites you and is, you know, interests you, you know, people will work 10 times harder on things that yes. are important to them than they will on something that is not important to them. If it's not important to you, fine. I mean, I would love to help you find the job that is important to you. That's, <laughs> that's great, but this is probably not the one. And that is, I, I think, probably the most, the most important thing. I, Again, I've spent a lot of time as a, a senior executive, and I've spent a lot of time as a professor. And developing people in terms of skills and you know their ability to, to tackle larger projects is something I like to do. Mm-hmm. I like to see people start and work with me and grow with me and grow with the organization and become whatever it is that they are capable of becoming. That's important to me. And that's that's you know why I'm still in, in this game. So those those are the, those are the three things that I look at. And being fully remote, there's there's people out there that are uh, that are interested. Granted, I'm not looking for somebody to a, a developer to work on you know pull down menus and dialog boxes. Right? right. I'm looking for right. people with some pretty deep scientific background. And uh, some per- that, are, that are capable of of solving different difficult problems, and um, and they're relatively few and far between. Yeah, but you know, all three items that you just listed. Number one, I'd like to distill that and implant it into the brains of people at big companies, especially. 
Um, but especially at some, there's also smaller companies where they could use a dose of that because look, there's a great study done. I think it was mid two thousands, like Oh six ish. Um, where this fellow followed 20,000 new hires for three years. He followed their hiring managers, the companies they landed at. And what he found at the end of the three years is only 19% were considered successful hires. Over half of the remainder had already departed. Uh, and the other half, the hiring team could have caught, would have been happy to go make a different decision because those people met. Maybe they checked the boxes you mentioned earlier, you know, like, okay, you've got this degree and that experience, check, check, check. And they can do the, the, the minimal responsibilities of a role. But I like where you're going with this. I like your philosophy that you want people who are inquisitive, curious. And of course, they've got to have that deep scientific background. But if you don't have natural curiosity, you're going to be lost because that's not going to help you solve problems. Um, I like the fact that you... And, and correct me if I misheard this, but I'm inferring that you're happy to train hard skills like, OK, you've got TensorFlow, but not Python or you've you know, you've got R MATLAB. But we need you to learn this. We're going to invest in you to do that and help you get there because we need it. But I really like what you say about buying into the greater story, being a part of the bigger story, buying into your mission, because I 100 percent agree with you. A lot of people, in fact, I'd, I would I would imagine that most people pursue the career because they see dollar signs or they they just need to work because they they got to um and those aren't good motivations for the pursuit no, of a career i always i i actually have a saying about that I say it's easy to make money mm -hmm. it's hard to make a difference there you go that's and a good that's, way to boil it down that's my philosophy on the whole thing yeah because you know, when I first got into the, the headhunting space 20-ish or so years ago, you know, the, the old adage in the business, well, if the money's not right, nothing's right. And and, and there is some truth to that, right. I suppose, yeah. uh, day in and day out. You know, it's got to at least be reasonable. But the people who did the best are the people, if you ask them what their top three priorities are in their new in their job search for their new role, their next career step – you always have the best luck and always most enjoy and best remember the candidates you work with who don't list money, who don't list prestige or title, although that can pay a little bit in there. But it's really about what are you pursuing? Well, I'm pursuing something greater than myself. Uh, that sense of purpose, I think, when you especially dealing with the distributed workforce is critical, you know, because no one's peeking over their shoulder. They're just working at their work product. That's all you see. And and that's great. That's fine. Uh, but you still need the ability for each person to be so bought in that they can't help but work to solve the problem. Yeah. You exactly. know, and, and, and to your point, that can be hard to find because a lot of people are just chasing a career path. And that's where I started. Personally, I had an uncle who was an accountant. And I thought, well, this would be good to go in because I really don't want to go do fluid dynamics and become an engineer. Um, and there were some other factors behind that, too. But that's where I started off. And I realized four or five years after uh, graduating that accounting wasn't the life for me. You know, I went to find something better suited to my strengths, my personality. Um, and to your point, I've enjoyed the ride when you see somebody and you help them develop and, and train them coach them, point them in the right direction, mentor them, however you want to put it, and however big or little the contribution might have been, to see them taking those steps to climb that hill, to get to the next plateau, to go to the next one, um, but above all, enjoying what they're doing. 
man, that's 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 a pretty good feeling. It's, it's fabulous. And, you know, and if you look at my LinkedIn um, connection list, you'll see that you know, there are hundreds of my former students are there. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of them to this day, they'll, they'll ping me. Hey, Dr. Lance, you got a second? <laughs> got this job opportunity. What do you think? You know, or what do you, you know, we're, you know I've, I've kind of become the uh, inadvertent life coach to a whole <laughs> generation of biomedical engineers and, oh. and, and i love it yeah love I'd it. take I, it I love, take it and run with it sure i mean own it right and uh it's it's fabulous to watch it's um it's great to see them go out and and be successful and um uh, I'm, I'm all about it yeah that's that's if we could again if we could distill that into a drink to give every professor and every big corporate exec out there to to have that disposition you know it's great to focus on the bottom line and it's great to focus on the curves and the the grading curve or whatever it might be or papers published but to your point having that impact you know do you want to make money do you want to make a difference you know what what's most important to you um to be clear, I want to make I want to do both. Oh but, yeah, oh absolutely. But if you do the if, if you do the difference, you're gonna you're gonna find you're, the you're, rest. you will find it. You you will find it, and uh, it will find you. I I also say that uh, capital finds talent, and uh, that happens all the time too. So um, if you're if you're solving problems that people need to have solved, meaningful problems, yeah. You know, and and sometimes people do it by accident. Sometimes people do it intentionally. Like, uh, was it 3M trying to uh, figure out the next generation of glue? I was reading the story in a book, and Post-it notes. And they yes. couldn't figure it out. And finally, somebody started using stickies, and boom, Post-it notes. And no one ever knew. I never knew that was a problem I needed solving, but apparently I did because my desk back then would be be covered with pink and yellow and green and blue Post-it notes everywhere. Um, so let me ask you this. So I remember years ago when we first spoke and you were telling me you were going to be out of pocket from time to time because you were flying an aircraft you built, if I remember correctly, up and down the West Coast, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm curious, you know, I don't need you to fly me anywhere right now, but I am curious, you know, when did you start flying and, and how long have you have you been doing that? Uh, I, I first soloed in 1986. OK, been flying a lot ever since I, I personally, I mean, if I want to fly, I fly gliders, sailplanes. Oh, okay. And, uh, there is no better place than the mountains of Idaho to mm-hmm. go spend some time surfing in 3d. I mean, it's, it's the, the Idaho mountains are kind of the equivalent of big wave surfing in Hawaii. It's, really? It's really amazing. Now, if, if I want to just go mess around, I have a, a Cessna 180 that's been highly modified. It's been in my family for 30 years and uh, I dote on it heavily. <laughs> and um, so when I want to head back up into the mountains somewhere. It's, a, it's set up as a bush plane. So we mm. can we take that up. And I, and I have flown it all over the country. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic machine. And then um, kind of towards the I guess 2014 to 2019 or so, you know, before the pandemic, business was much different, and right. um, that personal effect was was a, was a big deal. And and during that time, I had my own jet, and I uh, flew it personally, uh, 
all over. And I, I put about 400 hours a year on that airplane. Mm. And um, that's a lot of travel. Yeah. I would not have survived the grind if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for that airplane. And then, now, since I've sold it since, uh, since the pandemic, and what I find anymore is I don't need it. And uh, business has changed so much since mm -hmm. then that uh, now it's purely, uh, it's kind of an anachronism uh, because we're so used to, you know, Zoom calls or something. It's just so much easier to get on a Zoom call. And, and you know, if you know the people that you're talking to, um, I can get a lot done on right. a Zoom call. If you don't know the people that you're talking to, I still have a, a little harder time. Um, I think that personal connection is helpful in certain, in certain circumstances. But um, overall, you know, an awful lot of business gets done electronically now. And so that allows me to live in Idaho pretty easily. And, <laughs> but uh, I, still, I, I still fly quite a bit. In fact, I, um, I'm a uh, Part 135 charter captain for a, a local, local charter outfit. I fly for them a few days a month. And uh, just to keep my skills sharp, yeah. Because yeah. you know, flying flying jets, I you you know you, you kind of keep doing it. And uh, I, I I just I love the smell of jet fuel in the morning. And so <laughs> and so I, I fly for them, and and we do. Um, you know, it's been some of the most meaningful flying that I've ever done because um, you know there's nothing quite like having like a, a heart transplant team on board, mm -hmm. and and you know. We're launching to go somewhere, and not only do I have to get them there safely, but you know somebody else's life is on the line right. to uh, to make that happen. And uh, I find those I find those trips to be just super rewarding. Oh, you're making a difference, man. Yeah, one yeah, one life at a time, right? One life at that's one life at a time, and and it's and it's great, and and I right. and I love that kind of thing. And um, so you know it's it's worth it for a few days a month for me. To, Spend a little time. I don't, I, I'm, I'm still at a loss. I was at a loss when we first started talking. Um, I don't know how you have packed so much into your days and, and, and your life, but um, that's that that to me is impressive because I know, you know, you and your wife, I know you've raised kids and, you know, you've you've developed cutting edge technology and you're you're developing it now. And but you're still finding time to go do those sorts of things. Um, I wish our business culture in this country reflected more of that than it does. Um, and I know that's not going to happen anytime soon if it ever does, but you it know, does I, in my company. It does your company. Well, that's what's important, right? Yeah. A, a, a close friend of mine once observed, he said, you know, Mark, you've got just, just the most, the most amazing life. It's, it's just remarkable. Mm -hmm. But you know that because you're the one that built it. <laughs> and uh, that is that is a truly, uh, that, was a, that was a pretty profound statement. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he gets it. He gets yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell me, and, and, you know, feel free if you want to name drop uh, your company's name, feel free to at, at any point or if, if, if you're open to having you know, people who listen to this podcast, go and take a look at your, your tech and what you're developing. Uh, feel free. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, the company is called, the name of the company is Voxel Systems. Okay. And um, it is, uh, the website, though, is Omega MRS. 
And okay. uh, Omega so that is MRS. a product name. Product name is Omega MRS. And yeah, .com. And uh, you can have a look and see what's there. And uh, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty interesting interesting stuff. Okay, I'm not going to hold you to this because I know it can be really fluid. But if you were a betting man and you were looking out into the future, when do you think Omega MRS is going to be out there making a difference on a larger scale? Oh, soon. Very soon. Um, there are currently 69 drug trials currently mm -hmm. in process for Alzheimer's drugs of a variety of types. And they are really... Um, they're really struggling. The clinical trials themselves are really, really struggling. And the reason they're struggling is they're, they're having a hard time getting enough patients in their, in their system. Okay. And they're especially struggling with trying to get early patients into their system. And, um, because they can't diagnose them. I mean, they can't diagnose them until they, until the people are starting to show, to show problems. And so we're all about trying to help them find those patients early. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that uh, we're going to be heavily involved in that uh, moving forward. I don't, I don't need an FDA approval uh, to, to do scientific research with a drug company. Right. And uh, so we'll be, we'll be in the middle of it uh, trying to apply this and also gain some additional information uh, from, uh, from these trials so that we can we can further incorporate that and refine our models and mm -hmm. learn a little bit more about what the uh, what the data is trying to tell us. Man, I think that's that's amazing. And I'm just thinking in my head as you were talking, how many years ago would this have been a mountain that wasn't climbable, but it's something that you can climb today? I mean, because it might what three years ago, five years ago, seven, whatever the number is. Probably five years ago, you'd have you. It just wouldn't have been possible. It just wasn't enough compute horsepower to do it. Yeah. But uh, we've got companies like Nvidia out there, who have been you know dramatically, you know, improving my access to compute cycles because that's what it's all about. It's all mm -hmm. about how cheap is a compute cycle and how many of them can I get in a really short period of time. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, and and they're doing it for a different reason. They're doing it because they want to put a video game console on the desk of every 14-year-old kid playing. Yes, right? I know. And they, want to, <laughs> and they want to do it for and they want to do it for like three dollars. And and that's great because a lot of the same mathematics that, that go on to generate these three-dimensional immersive environments uh, also happen to be a lot, a lot the same sorts of mathematics that we need to, right. to, to do what we're trying to do. So great. Um, all for it. All for it. Well, then, if they if I do find go, uh, consoles at three dollars a pop, I may just go buy a half dozen. That yeah, would fit the family needs. Um, just thinking out loud here, too. You know, when you look at the fact, and this is one of the things that caught my attention. You've got an existing technology out there, the MRI technology, that's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. And you're taking that and you're ratcheting it up in terms of the ability to see what's actually going on. Again, before it gets mass and momentum uh, and the diagnostic process is just 
it's finding niches like that. That's not really a niche when you think about, you know, you got Alzheimer's and you got TBI, but behind that, you can address who knows how many other issues, health issues for people uh, with the technology. I would love to apply this to prostate cancer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I would love to, <laughs> I would love to have a, on a personal note, I would love if there had been, and if they would develop a reliable screening or testing for uh, ovarian cancer, yeah. uh, near near and dear to my heart. And there's not one. You know, there's stuff that you know it's well, maybe, maybe not, but um, it, there, there's just so many applications. I, if I were sitting in your chair right now, my mind would be spinning on a daily basis about where to go. But I think you're focusing in. Uh, it sounds like you've got a great team around you. And I know that data science and machine learning, AI, that's just going to accelerate where you're going, you know, and I'm excited to see what happens with it. Uh, frankly, I bookmarked your website. It's on my browser <laughs> and I want to keep tabs on it. And, and Mark, I don't know offhand if you want to share real quick before we close out. Um, I think you delivered some great advice to anybody who is looking to make a difference with their career uh, and follow a path that that's driven by their curiosity and desire to, to do that. I'm curious from a from a modern technology standpoint, you know, looking out, you know, three, four, five years ago, we couldn't even address this problem. And part of it was uh, compute cycles. Part of it was you know, getting people who actually had the experience enough to de help develop this, these things. Where are things going to go next when you look out, not just for your company, but other companies, you're competing for what's right now a fairly limited pool of resources uh, to drive the development of these technologies. I'm curious, how do you see that changing, developing, evolving over the next, say, three to five years? You're, you're absolutely correct. It's a very limited number of people that, that can kind of play in this, in, in machine learning in general. A lot of people are diving in, mm -hmm. um, but there's a difference. You know, there's a, yeah, just because you went to a three week long, you know, machine learning boot camp doesn't mean you, you're that much of a data analytics expert. And, and the ability to, to analyze data and understand and understand what it's telling you is is a is a real skill. It takes it takes years. Um, but um, I think this stuff is going to really change the world, and I, and it's going to really change it in a in positive and negative ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we are already seeing you know some of the negative effects of you know machine learning, you know, deep fake videos, and all this all this crazy stuff. Um, but um, Potential gains for you know, safer cars, safer airplanes, um, better medical diagnostics. All of these things are just so huge that we have to go after it. And it's like any very, very sharp tool. Because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what machine learning is. It is a very sharp tool. And uh, you can cut yourself with it. Absolutely. But um, a sushi chef with a really sharp knife can, can create some art, create man. some great things. <laughs> and so um, I'm all about I'm all about sharp, 
sharp tools and uh, if, if used responsibly. And we're going to, you know, socially, I think we're going to have to adjust some to, to um, properly handle that. And uh, there's just going to be some, there's going to be some issues around that. But largely, it's, it's going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to find better applications for it. There's gonna it's gonna cause some upheaval. I think right. there's gonna be some uh, some types of jobs are gonna get replaced by it. Just like any just like any technology that's ever occurred. Um, you know, there are when uh, automobiles started displacing horses and buggies, and you know, all the guys that were building coach whips were all of a sudden <laughs> <laughs> losing some business. Yeah, that's that's not gonna happen anymore. You, Better learn how to better learn how to you know build or maintain cars, and um, we're going to see a lot of that moving forward. Exactly what those killer applications are going to be, it's it's hard to say. I mean, yeah, yeah, cars, cars, airplanes, and uh, and medical diagnostics. I think those are, those are pretty clear. But there's going to be some other people are going to get creative in how they how they uh, use this stuff, and we're going we're to see some pretty neat things. Yeah, well, that'd be exciting. And let me just say for a moment, thank you again for carving out the time uh, to talk with us. And um, if anybody is looking for Dr. Mark Lennox, I know that they can find you on LinkedIn. And I know that they can find you at OmegaMRS.com as well. Or or 3D surfing throughout the, on a glider throughout the mountains in Idaho. That's right. <laughs> My call sign's Kilo. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Very much appreciate it. And I'll look forward to seeing how things develop and staying in touch. Thanks very much. All right. We'll, we'll take it easy. See you later. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabretooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning, data engineering, data science, and developer roles. Stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at sbr2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.